Welcome to another Stoned Apes podcast. We are back again, and you have not the three motherfuckers, but that's okay. That's okay. Today, we have a special guest for you and a special day. Um, I'm glad that you guys came back to join us again. We are joined here today. It is the Reverend and Sarge with Mr. Anthony Ferguson. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing good. Thank so, you. You guys may know, I don't need to introduce our episode sponsor. Uh, he is here with us today. But Anthony Ferguson owns Malevolent Art Tattoo Studio out of Barnhart, Missouri. Correct. And you opened that in what time this year? Uh, July 22nd of last year. Congratulations, sir. Thank you. Now, I want to tell some stories because I got tattooed by you today. Yeah. So I want to take some time to kind of tell that. But I got to tell a little background, too, because we've known each other for a long time. And so I ran into you the first time we were, uh, it would have been, what did we say, eight years ago? Uh, actually, is going on about seven years, yeah, a little over seven years now. And I was getting tattooed by your mentor. Yes. Tony. Yes. Right? And then, uh, so there was three Anthonys in the building. All great things happen in threes. I just want to throw that out there. <laughs> but, so... Tony was your mentor. You were in an apprenticeship at the time. You were doing piercing, tattooing, and then uh, you ended up getting linked up with me. And then I've just kind of known you. We've done business together, obviously. And uh, I've done your bookkeeping and accounting and some different type of stuff for you and some consulting. And then um, and then you ended up going down the road and you opened your own shop and then here you are today. And that's pretty freaking awesome, man. That's a dream that most people don't get to realize. It was definitely always a dream from the start of my career. Um, like you said, I was already piercing when we met. Um, I've been piercing longer than I've been tattooing. So, like, I had this dream, and even the, my shop name picked out during my piercing apprenticeship, which was about 14 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was just always been that goal. Right. Um, and then COVID shut down. All that, that happened, and I actually benefited from it, and you don't hear that too often, and that is just solely because I had all my duts in the row already. Right. Um, But that helped me get the means to build my shop the way I wanted it. Yeah, you definitely had a very good business sense about you, and you were in a place to be prepared for COVID. And then when you when COVID happened, you were able to take advantage of that, and everybody else's downturn ended up becoming your advantage, your 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 time to shine because you were prepped, and now you have a shop and things have been going great. Yeah, it's been um, amazing. Um, ebbs and flows is something that we talked about earlier today, but in hindsight, stress, everything on that level is very low. Um, everything I perceived is happening and i continue just to have it grow congratulations man thank you well i want to tell on you a little bit because i guess this is one of the few times to where i've had tattoos from somebody that is going to be on the show right that's probably not going to be a, a common occurrence i would not think but um you know one of the things that I appreciate about the process with you and, and to kind of walk the audience through, if you haven't been to a lot of tattoo shops, I've had some pretty interesting 
uh, dealings with tattoo artists over the years. And um, I don't look typically, especially in the past, did not look like somebody who got tattooed. I wore the suit and tie and the shirt and, you know, the cardigans and had a very kind of preppy appearance. And so I wasn't greeted very well when I walked into tattoo shops. Like they would always look at me like, oh, look at this fucking guy, right? You know, what can we sell this asshole? And then I would get the stuck up attitude and then they would kind of like sell me whatever they wanted. And then if I acted like I knew anything at all about tattooing, I got completely snubbed. It was like, oh, how dare you try to tell me anything about my craft, sir? And then it had just, and then it was, you know, then you deal with the, um, unfortunately in the tattoo industry, you, there are, there's that, that tortured artist syndrome and you see that a lot and, and it can, and as a client that gets projected sometimes. And I've dealt with that over the, over the period of time. But, uh, you know, one of the things that I really have enjoyed with your shop is the experience from start to finish is so professional you 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 make contact with you you always respond to emails i can't tell you how many times i can't tell you how many unresponded emails i have from artists all over the state of missouri that i have sent emails to just trying to get a reply and can't get that and then you respond to me as soon as i contact you you get back to me within a reasonable time you know and then you work with me you worked with my design you helped me come up with it you completely designed well, this piece we did kind of a redesign on. Yeah, this piece was more of a redesign, um, mm-hmm. but definitely gave it more. But my um, Polynesian, you designed that from top to bottom. You did all the research. You found the history and the meaning of all the different symbols and what to put together and how to build the meaning. I mean, there was a whole process that went into that that was pretty freaking amazing. I would say, yeah, there's only one part in that whole piece um, from the Thai yeah. part that you're like i just want this in here and, somewhere. My, and i gave you like zero inspiration i was like hey i want a polynesian i want it to be on my chest and i want a muay thai thing in there somewhere and you were like i'll figure it out yeah. <laughs> and we did like and uh, he did first draft too yeah, i was like, like i love it all right yeah that was amazing well nice. i think uh now both tattoos including today that was first draft um yeah well you listen and that's the difference yeah. You listen, and then you talk back, and then you explain. Because I think that's an important thing, and you you taught me that. It's, as a client getting tattooed, you do not know how to tattoo, and you don't understand tattooing. And watching you tattoo today, as an artist myself on different medium, I was looking at the process of tattooing versus drawing or painting. And there is a big difference in what you were doing versus what I was expecting, right? And we talked about that during the process. So it is a little bit ignorant of me to sit there and, and predict to you or to tell to you, hey, I want something a certain way if, if what I'm wanting doesn't work. And what you do a really good job of, you do a good job of saying, no, look, here's the color palette, here's the situation, here's what we got going on, this is what's gonna work with this tattoo, and this is why. And then when you explain it in that way and then we come up with a compromise, it's like, oh, yeah, I got exactly what I wanted and I got something even better because it's going to work with the piece that I wanted to work with and it's going to do the things that I wanted to do. And, and I think that's why every time it's been a first draft kind of thing because you've modified and made the changes and you listened to what I wanted and, and the product came out. Well, one of the things I always went into, like from, again, starting off piercing, being around a bunch of artists while working in shops, um, you would hear that kind of like butthurt um, artist, that syndrome of like, well, they've been through it. You can feel that projection. 
but it's just like any profession. Like you're not going to, you're going to ask the plumber certain things of what you want, but they're the professional. They know what needs to be done and how it will pass code and everything else. Right. So why in my industry that people don't perceive that, that they don't even take that into account that you are the professional and you need to explain this. Right. Like I never understood that. So I always took that approach. I just, I like going to your shop. Like when I showed up today and like when you walk through the door, it's bright, it's white. You've got all of that art everywhere. You know, all of Tony's custom signs and a lot of that cool stuff that's in there, you know, hand painted, you know, real art, which is cool, right? You don't see all those digital printed images and all that stuff. You see things that the artists have created and that makes it a really nice space and you get to see some of that quality. And so, yeah, it's a very inviting shop, something that, you know, feels professional and clean. Like, I don't feel like I'm going to catch something when I leave. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, you don't want that. Like, if something looks dingy and dirty, well, we, it's you most know likely one, dingy and dirty. You know, the one thing that you do that is above and beyond, not different, but above and beyond what any tattoo artist that I've worked with before is your dedication to, like, cleanliness and the, down to the glove changes, down to showing you the dates and the needles, knowing that, hey, look, this needle is not expired yet. This is good to use. And knowing that through the process, it's like, man, there's times where you're taking steps that I feel like, oh, you're, we're good, you know? And, and it, it's cool. It gives you, like, a, a sense of safety, like, makes you feel like the whole process is going to be a little bit better. Well, especially on certain areas or certain tattoos, and, again, tattoos are permanent. Like, there are removals, there are cover-ups now, but they are still a permanent process. So, if you have such a bad negative experience, that sits with you right. in any aspect of your life. So, like, you have a negative effect with a tattoo. Well, I don't want to deal with that animosity when I go get another tattoo. Right. So, if you can be relaxed, one, your canvas is going to sit better. They can enjoy their time better. Um, depending, tattoos are pricey, especially depending what you're getting. Yeah, but are they? I mean, you know, that's one of the things I struggle with. When I was a young guy, I got my first two tattoos, and I paid $100 for this dragon on my right arm. It was straight up clip art, like right off the wall, right? And then I got it done in some dude's kitchen, makes it even better, because he's like, no, 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 I'm a licensed tattoo artist, right? And it looked exactly like what you would expect that tattoo to look like. Now, the second tattoo that I got, I got at a reputable shop, but it was not a well-researched shop. It was just a professional shop. So I'm not going to say the word reputable. That was the wrong word to use. They were a professional tattoo studio, but not a reputable studio. You could just say they're licensed. They were licensed, <laughs> right? They met the minimum requirements, and I got a minimum required tattoo. And then, then I got both of them covered years later. And, you know, what I realized is, one, I walked around with tattoos that I did not like on my body for the better part of a decade. And that sucks. That's something that is really hard to live with. That's something that you're like always looking in the mirror at. You're always self-conscious of, right? And then I got them covered up. And then uh, I think I had the tree done first, didn't I? Anthony or Tony did the arm second. Yeah. So yeah. you already had the tree done. And then, you know, and, and when I got to that stage in my life, I realized two things. One... I'm never going to get a tattoo by an artist that I don't research really, really well. 
I want to make sure that they're not just doing the art that I like, but I'm, I'm looking now at like the technical side, because you taught me that, right? Mm -hmm. Look at the line work, look at the saturation, look at their use of colors, you know, and uh, and look at the color palette choices and all this other stuff. So now it doesn't really, I don't look at a, a picture to say, hey, I like that picture. I'm looking at that tattoo going like, what was the techniques that he used? And, and is that going to work in the type of tattoo that I'm wanting, right? And so then I learned that was the, a very important step. And then also finding an artist that was interested in what I wanted to do. And mm -hmm. I thought that was a, a big thing as well. But um, the biggest, the, the last part of that that I think is what I'm saying for the audience is, I realize that you're wearing this for life. Like, it, you have this on your body as a permanent piece for the rest of your life. And we have, we have things that, that, like, let's talk about cars. If I said, hey, you know, we're going to go buy a new car tomorrow. And I, you said, what are you going to get? And I said, I'm going to go get a new truck. You would expect me to spend, what, $65,000, $70,000? And I'm not really expected to own that truck more than five to seven years. In fact, most people that are buying them new only keep them for about three, right? Correct. Yeah. Because they're doing leases and other, and other things, right? We wouldn't see that as a waste of money. But if I looked at you and I said, hey, I have a $16,000 leg tattoo, somebody would be like, oh, my God, I can't believe that. But like, yo, prorate that over the length of my life, and it's like dollars a year. Can you finance a mortgage on that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, it's you know, it is ridiculous. Well, um, that same aspect. Like, I've worked down by where I'm at now. I worked more in South City as well, and you will have that argument, even like over shoes. Like, hey, I got the new Jordans. Don't scratch on my shoe but then like try to barter with you on your tattoo right um it happens and ultimately we are all people and we do want something cheaper or Tat more for nothing tattoo is not the place that i want to compromise I, I agree with you on that that's not the place that they are more permanent it's not like like you just want go away i want the artist i want the quality i want the assurance to know that i'm going to leave with the reasonable piece that i was hoping to leave with right and, and then I want all the customer service and everything that comes with that. But at the end of the day, the price tag is once I get what I want, this is for life. Like I, if, if I can't afford it, I'm going to wait until I can't. Right. Because I'm not going to rush that. And then why do I want to piss the artist off? Why do I want to put him in a situation where he's like, well, you know, I'm going to discount the price and I'll just rush this tattoo. Like that doesn't do anything for me. I'm wearing this for life. He doesn't <laughs> care. Right. It's like, I'm going to leave the chair and then what does he know? Right. I really have to tell clients that when it comes to vacational spots, um, they are on vacation. They're like, hey, let's symbolize this time with friends, family, and they want in right then and there. They're not planning on it, and I get it, but those vacational spots, some of those shops, if you don't research it, they really don't care. They're not going to see you. You're moving back. Right. You're on vacation. But see, I've wanted to get some destination tattoos. I'm glad you brought that up. Because I've been looking into doing that. <clears throat> I went, uh, we were going to um, uh, Kauai, mm -hmm. and then uh, I was, why I was on Kauai, I wanted to get a tattoo to commemorate that. And so I found an artist up there. I've been working with him for a while, came up with like a cool little piece that I think I could get done while I was there. You know, but you got to book it, right? I got to book that six months in advance or something and, and know that I'm going to get there. But I still have no idea what the hell I'm going to leave with. <laughs> well, at the same time, though, you still research that artist. Truth, yeah. So I I'm wasn't going to just client, go to nobody. Yeah, I'm talking about the clients that, hey, I went to Florida, and the last day we were there, we're just, we decided to get a tattoo. The shack right outside the resort. That 
<laughs> yeah, you're like, that's the place to go, right? Right. They're not going to the reputable shop that's booked out. They're going to the shop that just get them in at that time. Yeah, you walk into that shop that's like covered in smoke and it's got dust an inch thick everywhere. Yeah, Bottomless margarita. Mm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're drinking a beer where you're getting a tattoo. And mind you, like I, I have, I'm a walk-in shop. Um, that doesn't mean it can't be reputable for walk-in shops either. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, because... How many times have we talked about, like, hey, I had a last-minute cancellation or rescheduled appointment? Well, look. Like, that kind of frees up time. There is, a, there is a different type of client for every type of business, right? And I think people misunderstand that. And I also think that people don't realize that different business models can come with different quality, right? In, I'm in the tax industry, and we have three distinct different types of clients. We have a speed of refund client. And then we have what we call a um, like a, a family client or your typical like family, maybe a little bit more involved. And then we have our complex clients that come in later in the season. And we have a completely different service strategy, marketing campaign. I mean, we cater our entire business differently based on who our clients are. And so being able to serve, and that all happens out of the same building. All of my consulting mm-hmm. clients and all the big business clients come through the same building. Right, so we have four distinct in, in our office. We have four distinct lines of business. We have the consulting and accounting and the business side. Then we have the tax side, and you know, in the tax side, we have the three distinct different types. But all of that happens under one building. And so, what you're doing is the same thing. You're offering, hey, here we are. We're a good quality, ret- reputable shop. You're going to leave here with good tattoos. But hey, we will cater to the walk-in client. But we're going to try to get you to a more custom piece, something that you're going to be happier to leave with. And I agree on that. And um, one of the biggest things that I could say for walk-in, like you hear shops being walk-in, and I could say this with clients, that doesn't mean you're going to always be able to just walk in and get something. Because some tattoos just need more time for drawing. Um, or they might those artists might already have appointments that are going to take more time than go into. And that's one of the biggest things I can really push. Well, I was in your shop the other day in that uh, I remember when that one client walked in and he wanted to get a hand tattoo. And the tattoo that he picked for his hand, as soon as it came out of his mouth, I was like, oh, no, that's a terrible (laughs) idea. That's not going to work, right? And you guys did a really good job of talking to him, explaining to him why it wouldn't work, and then moving him toward a piece that would, that he was ultimately happy with, that when the tattoo was done, two hours later was amazing right he left out of there with a much better piece than he would have if he would have came out of there with what he wanted when he came in and he actually came back and uh, we did his other hand yeah nice see and that's the difference right when you get a good quality piece then it creates repeat business yeah and uh he's actually been a client of mine for a little while but he's bound shops just collecting art and there's nothing wrong with that he saw different artists and saw the pieces that he wanted and went for it. Uh, I think now we're going to also, he does car shows, and we're also going to be wrapping his car with the shop, like a shop logo as well. That's exciting. Cool. Yeah, man. That's going to be really neat. So see that little walk-in event? You know, we talk about that on the podcast all the time, right? It could be a chase meeting, right? One little chase meeting anywhere at a coffee shop in your line of business or whatever, the person's going to walk through the door, and then opportunities open up, and all of a sudden now you're exploring something you would have never have considered, right? I guarantee, like, sponsoring a car show wasn't something that would have been in your thought process when you were looking at advertising or marketing. 
not at this time and not for the car shows that he does because he does more drifting and that's not something i've ever geared towards i'm not a gearhead um shame on you mind you my dad is so i was around it and i went more on the art scale of things um but that was still a different aspect my father does drag racing and dirt racing Mm -hmm. so to then have the drag or the actual drift end I know nothing of that caliber, but that is a younger market and younger audience. Right. So, it's just something to get to be excited about. It's new. Exactly. Right. Sometimes it doesn't have to make a whole lot of sense. It could just be like, you know what? I like that shit. Let's go do that. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Why not? Right. That's life living. And, and one of uh, the best things for advertisement is that kid, anybody asking about it, he has work from my shop to yeah. show them. So... He's my salesman without even knowing it. Right. Well, you and I, thats a, you brought up something just a second ago that was interesting because we even talked about that today. But you and I brought up the concept of how people misunderstand the, like, the loyalty issue with, uh, with their artist or, or what they're expecting out of their artist. Because um, I collect artists, right? Yeah. I have tattoos from multiple artists. You've tattooed me now twice. Yes. And then I've had tattoos from other people. So... You know, being able to diversify, but and that's never bothered you. Not at all. Not at all, right? And and you said what bothers you though is like when you, you they take the work from you or they leave, like they lead you on and then like go somewhere else. Yeah. So like the same concept of like the bartering that we were talking about before, um, I call it wasting my time, and that's one of the biggest things that most artists get irritated with. If you're talking, you researched me. You want to come to me because you see my work and you like my work. But then they want to go to a different artist solely because of the price. Right. And they spend all this time talking to you. Like, you could be, as a salesman, and they say my business is a lifestyle. And the biggest thing about that lifestyle is you never stop working. But that's the same with any small business, too. Um, any small business owner, you don't stop working. Like you go home, you're working, you're advertising, you're trying to figure out different marketing ventures. So like when I'm spending two to three hours talking about this one piece to iron out everything they want. And then they're like, well, I want in on this one day. Well, I'm sorry. I don't have that day available. This is the next available day. I have time to do your tattoo. And then you see the next day that they went to a different shop that could just get it in just because it was cheaper and it was that time frame that they wanted. Right. Um, that, it hits home in a weird sense. Uh, like, I just spent all this time working with you and in a sense I was disrespected. Right. Like, you were literally trying to talk me up, talking about how you love my stuff, how you love my work. They some of my workers on your friend that's why you came to me but because i couldn't fit you in on the one day that just all goes out the window right yeah that's tough sometimes you know we see that in martial arts don't we yeah you get those guys that come in and you work with them and you pour them or they become part of the gym or they're with you for a long time and then all of a sudden you wake up one day and they're gone and then you find out they're training down the road or they're at some other gym you know and it does it feels like you just got broke up with like, you know, it's a little bit like, damn, 
you know, you came here, you were part of this, and, you know, I thought we had something, and then you went the other direction, and, you know, sometimes you have to seek some closure on stuff like that. Yeah, it can be, uh, I think, it doesn't matter what it is, if you go forward in good faith, in how you operate, business relationships, you know, whatever, in the aggregate, you're going to come out in a net positive. You may take the little L's, there may be the little rubs, but at the end of the day, if you're doing and operating in an upright way, that person's going to know. Like, they know you gave them that three hours, and they they know they went somewhere else and whatever else, because guess what? If they get a piece of shit art from that other shop, they'll be back. Right. They're going to, you know, you've probably had it happen. They're going to come see you again. You know what I mean? Oh, I definitely do. It's, again, what me and uh, Rev were talking about of the ebbs and flows of business. Like, you're going to have that at times. But if you stay true to what your moral code is, then in or even a, what's the word I'm looking for? Your business. Ethic. Yeah, your ethic, your business ethic. It's going to shine through from all the stuff. And in a sense... You can even weed out some of the bad clients, the people that you really don't want to work with. Oh, yeah. Just by sticking to, basically sticking to your guns. Um, and that's the same with any business, like sticking to your policies. Like, if you don't budge on that, no one can argue it. It's your policy. So how right. did you come up with the name? Uh, so I really like a lot of dark art. Like, I'm... I go two different directions with my art. One, I grew up with comic books, um, cartoons, and all that nature. And I was one of those kids that was basically raised by movies. So it was cartoons and then horror movies. Hmm. My mom made me watch horror movies when I was really little. And when I say really little, I mean like watching Hellraiser when I was five. Because so you she got, thought it was funny. So you didn't sleep much. <laughs> no. And, but he now, is now an insomniac. Uh, yeah. Shocker. I, no, no I am an insomniac. And, but at the same time, it also made it to where those things don't scare me now. Like, and so the name actually came from me going indulging in a lot of the horror movies that I like or 80, 90s horror movies. And B-rated horror movies. Evil Dead. Evil Dead. Fucking love Bruce Campbell. And, hell, get Bruce Campbell on here. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) That'd be awesome, actually. And. We will work the magic. Mm -hmm. And, again, I even remember watching Bruce Campbell and, like, Xena and Hercules. Um, Oh, hey, if anybody out there that's listening knows Bruce Campbell, have them message us, and we will absolutely get him on the podcast. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, But... Talking about any horror thing is obviously something that's going to hurt you. So I started looking at, like, hey, where are different words that associate with, like, this dark horror genre? Right. Because tattoos and piercings were always considered, like, a dark and horror thing and even started with sideshows. Mm-hmm. They were in sideshows just for people being tattooed and right. pierced. So I started looking into it, and I came across uh, Malevolent, mm-hmm. which is a dark entity causing harm. Well... What's a tattoo and piercing? It's causing harm. And then, but it's an art. So, malevolent art. Oh, okay. Right and on. that's literally where it divulged from. 
I've just kind of been curious, and I know you you mentioned when we started the podcast that you'd had the the name even in your head way before. So I just kind of wanted to pick your brain on how that kind of happened. Oh yeah, he had the name picked out years before he had the studio. Oh yeah, like uh, again, like it was during my print piercing apprenticeship and one thing i can say like i said 14 years ago um this july will be 14 years of being a licensed piercer but my apprenticeship was two years prior to that you don't count your profession until like you actually are licensed and start doing it right and so i didn't just have it in my head i had it on my business cards i treated myself because we are self-contractor Right. I treat myself like a business, and as a marketing venture for when I opened my shop, it was on all the cards I handed out over all those years hmm. to where if my shop opened, any place I was working, that if they didn't tell them where I went, which is really big in my industry, yeah, everybody knew where it was and who it was. Oh, okay. Hmm. Right. That's cool. Well, you know, here's something that I think is interesting about you. And you just, the thought that you put into the name alone highlights this. But I worked with Tony at the end of his career with some business consulting stuff and uh, helping him with some tax situations. And that's how we got linked up. And then I got the tattoo, you were there. And then it was months later. I mean, I didn't really talk to you or have any contact with you for six, eight months, maybe, after that. Yeah, for the most part. Yeah, and then all of a sudden you contact me one day out of the blue, and here comes this guy. He's an apprentice. He's not even a, a full tattoo artist yet. Mm -hmm. And he says, hey, I want you to uh, start doing my bookkeeping and help me set everything up so that I can get my affairs in order, and this is what I'm going to do. And uh, and I start asking him. I was like, well, you know, I had expectations. Like, what, what are you looking to do? or how are you?" And he's like, look, I want to open my own shop, and this is my timeline. And he gave it all to me and just, like, laid it all out. And I went, wow, you're different. I, you have my attention. You know? And then I said, yeah, we can absolutely do that. And he's like, okay, let's do it. And then we did. <laughs> yep. And uh, even now, like, we were talking about uh, clients coming in and be like, now that my shop's open. Oh, you did it. What are you planning on doing now? Like thinking like that's the end of this venture. I'm like, no, oh, like this is just the uh, beginning. Five years, I'm gonna own my own building. I rent right now. I'm gonna own my own building. This is gonna grow, and like there's another five years. Like this is my goal, and you that's gotta what have I'm a vision. I mean, and ultimately in my industry, one of the biggest things I always went into is if you don't, if you stop growing and you stop learning, you're dead in the water. So that was my, that's always been my thought process. Hmm. And I see a lot in my industry too from older tattoo artists after their apprenticeship, they don't want to grow. They don't want to listen anymore. They get stagnant. And that's almost like a fear. But isn't that true in life? It is. I mean, you can never stop growing. You can never stop learning. And the second that you do, the second that you think you know everything, the only thing that you can be truly sure of is you know nothing. That is the most dangerous moment, you know, and I pursue learning and I pursue personal growth every day and I constantly reflect on situations and you constantly accept new information, you know, and you have to. Mm -hmm. That's where the good information comes from. And that's the, you know, if you're not receptive to that and you don't, you don't have the ability to 
put that into everything that you do. You know, I put that into life. I put that into business. I put that into being a martial artist. I put that into everything, being a father, being a, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, a partner, right? And so that becomes your life credo. And so there's no doubt that with that positive credo, you're going to be successful regardless of what you're doing. Yeah. I would definitely like to add that, like, even from my apprenticeships and having to watch and learn and take constructive criticism and learning to grow now that I'm training, like both of you, like I ask, I ask questions all the time or any critiques. I'm going to just say, okay, like I'm not arguing. And like, I'm like, they see it. So there's obviously a problem or a fits that I need to take in consideration. I start working on it. Right. Oh, it's always the best when somebody looks at you and says, I'm not doing that. It's like, wait, 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 stop. Okay. I'm looking at you. Okay. <laughs> cool story. Oh, man. I feel like that's just punishment time. Like, someone says um, that, you're like, oh, okay. And then just keep on catching them in that same we, spot. We haven't resorted to punishment yet. That's, no. That's down the road. I don't know. Sam's no. got me in a few triangle chokes. <laughs> that's not punishment. No, no. That's learning. You get held in a mother's milk position for like two or three minutes. That's punishment. Fair. I don't even know what that is. That's how little jujitsu I know. It's awful. It's Fair. I, I don't want to find out. It's terrible. Yeah, if Sarge is saying it's awful, then uh, it's awful. <laughs> I don't. I have no doubt. There's and like a there's like a tree of these are the real big dick moves you can do. Brandon McCaffrey had a whole series on. Here's the top ten you guys voted on of the most asshole moves you can pull on people. I watched that too. And one of the, one of them is one of my favorite ones to try to pull now is the oh. punch choke. <laughs> I will tell you what, you know, speaking of jujitsu, what a complicated, complex art this is. It is so fascinating, you know, coming from Muay Thai to jujitsu and, and finally to a traditional school of jujitsu, not just like, a, you know, a grappling school, right? But like coming to some, yeah, coming to some place to where they teach the moves and they expect you to know the names and all that other stuff, right? And it's like, you know, we in Muay Thai, we got like 30 moves, right? And and then, give or take, like, I, I don't know, I could make a list of them, but it's not a lot. But in comparison to jiu-jitsu, there's like a thousand moves, right? Ridiculous level of complexity difference between the two styles. And the... the learning the positions and what my uh my youngest came up to me the other night and he goes we were doing a flow and then he just rattles off the positions he's like we're going from dump truck to this to this to this and he's something driver and i was like okay okay and he just looked at me like he thought i got it 100 percent. i just, i looked over and i was like i have no clue what the fuck he just said can somebody show me what to do <laughs> I'm not going to lie, I have a hard time remembering names. Like, I literally look at Sarge at times and be like, show me what to do. I need <laughs> flashcards. That's you know, what I need. I need, like, little positional flashcards that I have to, like, guess the name of. And I can be like, oh, shit. Hey, look, I remember that. So I think it's, like, one of those things. We don't have a Rosetta Stone for jujitsu, So you just got to go live in jujitsu land for a while. Right. You know what I mean? You're going to learn the language, like... Well, it just like, takes time. It's like the other night of class, you know, I used, uh, we had that Muay Thai entry, right? And mm -hmm. I used that arm scoop to come under the back. And then I reached over and I grabbed the 5-0 grip, right? And then I hear it as I'm instructing and I'm like, we grabbed this grip. And then I'm thinking, I wonder what the hell the name of this grip is. And then it dawns on me later. I was like, oh, it's 5-0 grip. I, think I know how to get to it. I have no idea what it's called. 
so uh, me and the professor were joking because uh, might have said something on the last podcast. But I was walking into the gym and I said, hey, I think we need to do some more uh, Kesakatami stuff. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, well, the other night when you had, because inevitably when every night I'm there, he does the, hey, senior guys, get out there. And I'm like, okay. So everybody would come down and be like, all right, go ahead and put me in Kesakatami. And I was having to explain to people what it was. And some people, I was like, judo side. Because that's what we tend to call it in Tenth Planet, and then some people wouldn't get it. I go, put me in Twister just toward my head, which really Twister is judo side backwards. But I was having to talk, even people who should know better, right. you know what I mean? And uh, him and I just laughed about it, kind of when I brought it up. I'm like, we don't do much of it. He goes, we do this. I go, but nobody knows that's what it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and it's just funny with the the names. Like last night when we were talking about every elbow having a name and mm-hmm. and stuff and uh I don't want to say it doesn't matter cuz it's interesting to learn like I liked your you know you nerded out on it on the culture and the why they do it and everything cuz I'm the same way like that right. fascinates me too um but then I go back to like our last podcast it's the art and science of human conflict. I don't care if you call it a sledgehammer or a warhammer. It's a hammer. Yeah, if it's effective <laughs> and it works. And, uh, and, you know, and well, but even in systems, right? Like, well, oh, that's not a sidekick. Well, that's not, oh, that's not a sidekick. Well, you, you know, know. Here, okay, so let me explain what I get excited about with the martial <laughs> art. And this is a really... I guess controversial subject in my world because I do an art because I do traditional Muay Thai. However, I'm in a combat world which is mostly associated with MMA. So it doesn't, it's like this hybrid kind of thing where there are many people who practice Muay Thai who don't practice traditional Muay Thai. Sure. And there are many people who practice traditional Muay Thai that don't do MMA or anything at all, and they never leave that, that realm, where I kind of got my feet in both areas. And so it's it's a little interesting to kind of comb the waters with that and to find out, like, you know, at what level do you... Um, do you branch that gap between what is traditional and what is just combat, right? But coming back to what I was saying that that I think is the point is what I get excited about with the martial art, what I realized when I became an instructor is what we are passing down is the purest form of human history. These have been combat skills that have been crafted and relied upon over generations and handed down one after the other in the truest combat form only the strong survived only what worked carried on and we are at a day and age to where this is starting to get watered down and so i believe that when i made the decision to become more traditional it was because i realized that it wasn't about just the fighting it's not just about the ability to beat up someone else. Like, that doesn't make you any better than another person. And, and, and once you learn how to do that and you can defend yourself, I feel like there's a certain amount of confidence that comes from that. But for me, it was like, when I look at my mentor, Ron Smith, there's such a great weight on me now because I am passing down his legacy. 
his add-on to that generations of Muay Thai that has been taught to person to person to person over that time. Like, that is history. I have to respect that. If I change that, I have to know why and I have to be able to explain why I changed it and where it came from. Because it's important for somebody to know that art. Because once that art gets lost, like, unfortunately, karate, nobody has any clue what the original karate looks like. And the original karate was actually a mixed martial art. It involved ground fighting, hand fighting. And the one thing that I've researched long enough to find out is that it was kung fu. When they, what they did with karate is they separated karate to make it more palatable and more sellable to people. And so that's where they got jujitsu from. So they took the grappling art out of there. That's where they got judo from. That was the throwing art. Then kicking and striking became the karate, which was that striking art. And so there were all of these disciplines at one time in the original form of karate, which is the only thing that's ever made sense to me. It was jujitsu. It, it, Samurai lost their sword on the field of battle. That's what they used was jujitsu. And that very... With the striking. It's a very different looking... The moves are the same, but you have more of all of it. Right. You, you, at a traditional, not Gracie well, Jiu-Jitsu I think Jiu-Jitsu today is the closest that we have to a full combat system. You know, I, some, I would argue Krav Maga. It's not that I don't think Krav Maga is effective, right? I don't agree with the way that it's always trained. Um, but... Uh, for that sense, that's a definitely a combat style art, right? And mm -hmm. then you have you know mixed martial arts and the other variants of it. But uh, you know, but even then, if you're not training a full system top and bottom, then it isn't really a full combat system. It just then becomes an isolated art form or something of purpose for whatever. Well, I think if you look at so it, even the weapons in karate, right? The kama, the nunchuk, the staff. It was a bunch of peasants. The reason those weapons is they were all farming implements. Right. It's the only thing they could train with to, to, to have as a weapon, right? Um, and it's interesting with there being for well, anything. Isn't, isn't that because they outlawed weapons, right? What, the, the peasants you, couldn't own a sword. You had to be a samurai to own yeah, a sword. So, yeah, right. They took that away because they outlawed weapons at that point. Right. And even the samurai. When you depending on the period you look at, like what we think of as the katana, that was actually more of a peacetime weapon that the samurai carried because it was shorter, more for dueling. Traditionally, they carried a longer sword, similar to I believe it's called an odachi. Um, and it's funny because if you look at European sword fighting manuals for a long sword and old kinjitsu manuals. The stances and stuff, like I could show them side by side, and they're very similar. Um, well, I'll tell you what, that's, you know, you, you're bringing up a lot of things that um, has always made me a fanboy of karate. And I have always taken a lot of flack for this because everybody has been like, you know, and I did start in karate, and that's not why I'm a fanboy of karate because I don't like modern day karate at all, right? Um, I don't dishate Kyokushin karate. Um, I have a couple of people in my life that have practiced that. And when modified, Kyokushin karate is dangerous. And it's very, very effective. Um, but what has always fascinated me, and I tell people, is to think about it like this. Here you are, your feudal Japan. Samurai show up. The baddest dudes on the planet with swords, right? They are legends. And you have no weapon other than farm tools that are laying around in your empty hand. 
and you kill this guy. You kill this motherfucker dead, right? Because you learned some karate shit. And you survive, and then you survive this apparently long enough that you can teach someone else. And here's the best part of this, is the guy that has technique that doesn't work, he died. He didn't go on to teach anyone else. So the only thing that's getting passed down now is the most tried and true and battle-tested. You have a word for that. What do you call that? Pressure-tested. Pressure-tested. It's only been pressure-tested, right? And so you go down the generations of this to the point to where karate was at some point. It had to be fucking fantastic. Well, it's, it's anything that is diluted that becomes done for a sport or nationalized like Taekwondo. I think the biggest reason it got ruined was when it got nationalized and taught in the schools there because it had its birth from the Harang warriors who fought with swords. And the reason all those kicks and shit is because they were like, yeah, we need to be able to kick Mongols off horses, jump kicking. And Fair. it they had to, <laughs> that's they, exciting. They had to use the shit for real to to live right like and that's why i'm saying a european longsword manual and a kinjitsu manual some of the stances and strikes and stuff look very similar even down to you know we romanticize because of some of the movies the way samurai battles happen but we could if we were shooting it live and i could pull up i could pull up youtube videos of them replicating that now and it literally looks like clash with a weapon some kind of grappling clinch range thing till somebody gets thrown on the ground and one of the dude is pulling a knife out prison shanking someone. Right. That's what it looked like. You want to know why? They're, the oldest, some of the oldest hieroglyphs and pictographs in the world show mankind tying up together and grappling. Right. And it doesn't matter what you're doing it with. Now, when you have stabbing impl implements, that's a thing. But I think for numerous reasons when things came here to the west and got diluted you know we heard about the dim mock and some of these other some of that's true like i can show i was showing guys just on sticking a kick the other night in muay thai the difference of just the follow through just a little oh, bit because yeah. i'm like look it's time on contact creating a fluid shockwave if your body's water mm -hmm. and the penetrating difference and they were like oh wow and i said i didn't even hit you hard. well and yeah and people don't realize that look anything that like we call a death touch right mm -hmm. if but let's look at the match that boss rootin had back in pain Grace when he threw that uh left body shot to that guy's liver he threw that left hook oh, yeah. to the liver and then he ruptured that guy's liver right i literally if, just watched if that. he <laughs> would have thrown that punch in outside of that ring without medical attention without anything and he would have hit that guy and that guy would have died in an hour two hours i don't know how long it would have taken for him to die from sepsis but he would have died. Right. You would have thought that was some dim mock shit. Like, straight up. Like, he punched that guy and that dude died. Like, legend born. <laughs> well, in the Chinese, you know, the acupuncture, acupressure, all that, there is some truth to it. But the problem, I think, has become, and I was, I mean, I came up in a traditional martial arts school. I was training since 1990, right? And... Even when, and in our particular association, we cross-trained with other systems, I fell in love immediately with the Filipino martial arts because my instructor 
although we were a traditional Taekwondo school, he was under a Filipino escrimador, Master uh, Cyril Maikane, who's passed, but he'd go to full contact stick matches. I remember my instructor Ooh. came back, and he was black and blue on his ribs, putting his gi on, and he uh, said out of like 300 people that went, only 50 people finished the weekend. Like, I saw a video of him get knocked out through a helmet with a flipping strike from Master Ine on the sides of his head, and I was like, that's real. That's real stuff. And you look at the Dog Brothers type stuff with sticks, they end up tying in grappling. Uh, but when the Gracies came in to the point, you know, UFC had just happened and Hoist Gracie beat everybody up, but they came. I got balled up by a brown belt. I'm a second degree black belt, and I'm like, I want to take my belt off. I'm like, this is worthless in front of my students. And then our masters even came out. And these are very skilled individuals, great technicians, but they're like, you know, I would just do this. Or, yeah, one elbow or a thumb in their eyeball. And even back then, I'm hearing that, and I'm kind of like, yeah. But then I'm also thinking, none of that's rocket science, though. Those guys can do that to us, too. And that guy was controlling me like I was a baby. And I train constantly. I run a school. Right. <laughs> you know? So I think the... The diluting of things in order to make it marketable and palatable to a generation of people who don't have to deal with imminent conflict in their daily lives is probably what has made it the biggest problem, at least in the West. Because I promise you, if you still go into areas of Thailand, look at the kids in Thailand. There's 12-year-olds with 100 fights. Their families, they'll go live in gyms, and their job is to fight just to send money oh, back yeah, to their family. Oh, yeah, they're so poor over there. That's part of their culture. Yeah, and their coaches yeah, don't you, coddle them. They'll be like, yeah, yeah. you fucking suck if, if you're they like, lose. If your family is poor farmers in, in <laughs> Thailand, and what happens is, is you and you have a, a child who has potential, then one of the local gyms will purchase your child, and then your child will go live at the gym, and it's kind of a... Uh, Fighting dogs. Rent, yeah, it's like a rent exchange. And so the, uh, the you, when you fight every week, the portion of your purse goes to the gym, and then the portion of it goes. And what you don't realize is, so when we look at a lot of these big uh, fighters, right? And so if you know anything about, like, Muay Thai fighters, you'll have, like, a Boaka Por Pramuk. Mm. Por Pramuk is Boaka's gym. They own him. He is not an independent. He is owned by that gym. All of the Fairtex fighters, right? Like Stamp Fairtex. Stamp Fairtex is owned by Fairtex. It is a completely different world over there. Those are not like their sponsors. Those are the gyms that own those individuals and they own those contracts until they can afford to buy themselves out. And some of them do. And I think Boaco is one that did. Um, Sanchai, I believe, is in his contract with Yakao voluntarily. But Sanchai is a living legend. But very few of them, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, the lizard guy. Uh, I know you're talking. You know about. who I'm talking about. Like he was able to buy himself out, right? Well, and even at the level you're talking about, though, with those guys, that's kind of like senior gladiator level. Oh like yeah, you made it the in rest the arena. Of them, yeah, the rest of them don't. But they, you know they have 300 fights. Well, and even down to so look in the Philippines, right? If you get to the like southern Philippines, there's a reason they started using sticks because stuff was outlawed. There's a lot of machete stuff down there. Literally, if you want to kill somebody, you can pay to have a hit put on somebody for like 20 bucks. One of my neighbors oh, was yeah. from there, and the martial arts and the way like death is an everyday well, thing I, there. Yeah. So here's an interesting thing. So um, I am part Filipino. So my dad's side of the family is Filipino. And uh, when I did my uh, 23andMe, 
I ended up only being like 7% Filipino, like 6.8% or something like that. Hmm. So it actually ended up being, I'm like mostly Irish, who knew? I'm like 70, 78% or 80% Irish, something like that. And uh, But anyway, my dad's entire side of the family is only like fourth generation from the Philippines, and they came from Cebu. And so I have a lot of people on my Facebook that I was following that was Cananea family from the Philippines. And the things that they would post on Facebook, um, they posted once there was this gentleman, he was, uh, he was guilty of sodomy of a child. And the townspeople collected him up, they put him in the street, they put him in a chair, they killed him, and then they left the dead body in the street, and like kids were coming around and like hitting him. This was a Facebook video that was socially acceptable and not pulled from Facebook because it was posted in the Philippines. That's how different the cultures are. Well, right? we, think about that. Well, we live in a... We speak about Western society like we're the largest... We're in your own world it's one thing but to go back to the how the how and why of martial arts and the diluting of it those cultures it was purposeful because it had to be even kata like i know you said originally you were kind of into kata and everything oh, else i love kata i <clears throat> so i've won several regional tournaments in kata well i used to compete i went to nationals a few times but uh especially my flexibility was good like i do open form stuff weapon based stuff I, I was pretty good at kata but when my instructor first said he said they used to use kata before they'd be going to war and they'd use it to teach like think about how much we've been trying to work with people on rotating their shoulders Right. If you're in a horse stance, which I know you've been having a personal fight with, <clears throat> I used to hold that for like five minutes and then have him walk by hitting me with a stick in the leg. Yeah, no thank you. I'm getting well, there. Well, and then throw, I will be there. The throwing <clears throat> punches where your arm's here, the stupid crowd, that's teaching you body movement and weight transference. It's teaching you because when you're going to your black belt stuff, it's all single hand technique. At the lower level, you're learning that stuff to learn driving through your kinetic chain. It's programming all those things. You, you know what I mean? Um, so it, what, there was a purpose behind it. And then it was, okay, we did these things. Now we're fighting. Right. Um, but they were, they were fighting, right? Well, isn't that the thing? <clears throat> so, you know, we used to accept that. That is the one thing that I'm very frustrated with as an instructor of martial arts, right? When somebody comes into the gym and they stand before me and they say, I want to learn Muay Thai, I am already under the assumption that they are going to spend the next 15 to 20 years doing this activity because that's how long it takes to accomplish what they just told me, right? That is mastery of this art. If you're going to commit to that, you've got, you got at least the next decade you're going to be sitting here. Okay, so this is the conversation that we're having. And then they want this, you know, in old traditional martial arts, we always see it like Karate Kid. How long did that kid get tortured before he learned how to throw a punch, right? right? And that was perfectly acceptable. But now we've got live in this world where somebody wants to show up day one and they want to start throw, throwing punches. And, you know, and we had new people last night and they were great. And I was able to kind of like work with them, but I was able to explain to them <clears throat> your basics, what you were learning today is the very most important thing that you are going to learn the rest of the time that you do this art. 
everything in this art starts from your footwork and your stance. Everything. And you will move in this position and you will learn to become a master of your footwork and then you will learn to change angles and create the fight and the geometries and all that stuff. But your punching is the end result of everything else going right. You have to learn all those basics and all those fundamentals first so that when you get to the stage that you can throw that punch, the end result is what you have put together. And people want to accelerate that. And thankfully, because I started in traditional karate, I realized that that was going to be a three-month, six-month, seven-month grind, and I put that in. And I think that's why I'm here 16 years later. So let me add on that, because it's something that we've talked about on a different scale, like how you were talking about the traditional and martial art. And then you were asking me that you didn't understand the schooling of what they're doing for tattooing compared to traditional apprenticeship for tattooing it's that similarity right there it's that grind of putting in so a traditional tattoo apprenticeship depending on who you're from was two to five years mine was two and a half and obviously people learn a different aspect but now you see all these people going in apprenticeships tattooing has taken a huge rise and now people are trying to fast track it and westernize that aspect to expedite these people getting out there. Well, and if you look at many, especially the Japanese culture, I don't care what they're doing. I don't care if they're building cars. I don't care if they're building swords. I don't care if they're building flower bouquets. They have a jutsu and an art. They have a methodical system where perfection and harmony are kind of the goal. Uh, And there's something to that, you know, uh, or the Germans do it too with some of their stuff. Um, Sometimes you can't have a cheat code and people have to, you have to learn to love the grind We talk about it all the time. You have to learn to appreciate the journey. And at some point, you don't care about the destination. It may still be there. But because even if you achieve mastery. It's like when I got my black belt. I'm like, I'm finally a black belt. And then it was like, okay, you mastered the basics. Good job. Let me re-say what you just said. Because I think that the destination does matter. And but and I know what you meant, though, because what you were talking about is the idea of continued progress. Yes. And continued progress is the you know, one of the biggest things that I've learned and that I'm trying to implement, not just in my life, but in everyone's life around me is this idea that you have this end goal. And, you know, everybody comes to it. So you know, somebody says that in business, you know, what is your goal in business? Well, I want to get to where, you know. My business runs itself and I'm retired and I'm whatever and this is it. And that's your end goal. And it's like, okay, so what you say is you want an autonomous business that you can manage, you know, at a high level that would give you the freedom to do other things that you want to do. That's what you just told me. Right. Why is that the end goal? That could be the today goal. Why don't we start there? Why don't we start there? And then when we start at where you want to be, how much bigger can we get from there? People limit themselves so much. Well, look what you asked Joe, right? 
You're like, you phrased something to the effect, and I'm paraphrasing, do you feel you're successful? Right. Or something to that effect, right? And his response was, because him and I uh, talked about it the other day a little bit, he's like, yeah, by any objective measurement, he's had success, but he ain't done yet. Right? Like, and I know for him and I, making it to retirement was a big deal, which sounds stupid because it's like, just keep showing up every day. But, you know, at least in the Army, when you hit over 10 years or your last enlistment, you don't get to make that call again every three years. When you're at that precipice, you're looking into the abyss because then it's like, I'm in this till they let me leave. And I can't do that till at least 20 years. Regard good, bad, indifferent, I don't care what changes. And so you kind of feel like, yeah, I hit this benchmark, but then you're also looking at it going, dude, I'm only 40 right, or whatever, right? And then uh, and him and I had many conversations uh, for him, like finding your next mission, finding... Well, here's the thought that I had on that. I'll tell you one of the most motivating things that has been in my life. And I was sitting in an office of mine uh, a few weeks ago with... Uh, with uh, future podcast guests of ours, I'm going to leave that one as a secret. Okay, that's going to be a great dun, dun, episode. Dun. I am so excited about their fucking episode. You have no idea. So that's coming up in a couple of weeks. So I'm excited about that. I think we have that booked for uh, April 21st. That's going to be exciting. Oh, good. I think I'll be here. Oh, for that yeah, one. yeah. That's going to be a great. You no, know, I'll be listening. So, well, so I'm, good. I'm going out to modern but, samurai the next week. We're having a conversation, and we're talking about uh, longevity science and, and the advancements that's been made with modern science and health and all of these things and how long people are living. And, you know, w- when I first started training uh, MMA, the individual that was uh, running the gym was 40 years old, and, and I aspired to one day be able to be 40 and, like, be able to do this, right? And then I went to the next gym, went up to Ron Smith's, and, you know, they were all in their late 60s and early 70s, and it was like, wow, I can't believe that you can do Muay Thai at 70 years old. That completely reshaped everything. Right. And then I started my own health journey, and I thought, how much healthier are we than them? You know, and then I developed this idea that I'm, you know, I'm going to be climbing mountains at 90. Like, I'm I'm going to just be hiking and doing the stuff that I'm doing well into my 80s and 90s. And then this really has been reshaped for me. Because here lately I've been seeing on Facebook, I've been seeing a 91-year-old man does a Grand Canyon, right? And then you have these other guys, 101 years old and still running university departments, okay? And they're saying he's on his way out soon, you know, in a few (laughs) years, right? And then it dawns on me, it's like, holy shit. We may live to be like, because of our generation, the advancements that we made, and especially now that we understand what we do about longevity science and the importance of autophagy for um, lifespan, right, for living longer. And when, in, in how that associates with fasting and things that we can do to expand life. I, I'm like, you know, yeah, I think I'm going to live to probably be, anybody who is health conscious enough has the potential you know, given their, their own biological and genetic makeup. Yeah, I think, you know, 120 is not an unrealistic figure for people in this lifespan. And so when I think about that, I stop and I go, wait, I've only been on this earth for 40 years. Everything that I've accomplished that I would say worthwhile or on my own accord started for me at the, around the age of 20, 
right? And maybe even less because the military is kind of me, kind of not, right? The military is still very much your parents teaching you life. And so, you know, I come out of the military 23, you know, and so I'm 42 now. So it is 19 years, right? And so that's it. That's my productive years with some type of like social education, able to be able to start life up to this point. And that's nothing. That is a fraction of time. Even if, even if you were only going to live to be 80, 23 years from 40 is only 63. You're not even at retirement. Think about how much more you can achieve between 40 and 63. How much more can you achieve now if that goes to 80 well, or 90? And you know what I see? There's that. But I think knowledge transfer and efficiency if I, so when I was 30 years old, Joe and I were talking about this. He was like, I was making life and death decisions when I was 23. When Joe was 26, he ran General Petraeus's PSD. Right. When I was 30, I was in, I was literally briefing general officers and heads of the state department on missions that affected stuff in Kosovo and Sinai. Now, what if we can do it for our kids? What if they're? Oh, what if exactly. they can do that by the time? Yeah. What if by the time they're thirty, they're able to be independently wealthy and pursue betterment for their kids to just exactly. exponentially grow that? Right. And the it's knowledge not, transfer. But it's not just for your kids. That's a big part of it. But it's even for yourself, right? Right. right. Think but, you look at all that experience. When I look back and I look at what I see as experience. And I go, oh, my God, look at all of this experience that I have right now. I don't consider myself a master. I don't know everything. I don't have a lot to still learn. I have a lot to learn in everything, whether I consider myself educated in it or not. People teach me things all the time that I think I know, right? So I understand that even though I'm a very experienced individual at this point in my life, now that excites me because I'm going, holy shit, how much more potential do I have at this moment than I had 23 years ago? I'm going to be exponentially more productive, exponentially more successful, because now I know what I want. Now, I, I, now I'm going, now that vision's clear, like you talked about, having a clear goal, right? Now I know the things in life that I want, and oh, by the way, I'm prepared to go get them. I've had the training, I have the experience, I have the things that I need. I left that apprenticeship, right? Yeah. And now I become the artist, and that's what I feel like that's the stage of life I'm in. I don't feel like I'm a master. I feel like I just become the artist. Well, and when you look to go back to what we were talking about, about feudal Japan earlier, you know, Miyamoto Musashi is pretty much undisputably the greatest swordsman who ever lived. He was also a very large man. If you read the Book of Five Rings and you read about his life, you know, being a ronin and traveling around and fighting. I don't remember how many people he killed in private duels and how many wars he fought. At the end of his life, he lived in a cave and did art. Right. Like, and and found peace and balance and stuff in that. But, you know, that is no surprise to me. Because somebody asked me that the other day. They said, um, how come they were surprised when they found out I was an artist? And I don't remember the conversation exactly. But, uh... You know, we kind of got in there and I said, why did you think that? And he said, well, you know, you're into the fighting and you got all this stuff and whatever. And it's like, yeah, but I said, isn't, isn't violence art too? Well, isn't that's why like a isn't, lot of... Isn't that where the connection's at? Well, isn't that why like a lot of samurais did uh, calligraphy? 
was that art and that drawing was balanced for when they did swordplay. Their 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 philosophy and the romanticism of it. So, a lot of people might not know this. I, I used to study feudal Japan a lot, like a lot, a lot, uh, when I was younger. Um, the samurai used to put potpourri in their helmets because if they had a death, they knew they were going to be beheaded as part of that death, as a good death, and they didn't want their heads to it to stink. Right. <clears throat> they, uh, it, it, the poetry of, and, and not even a fear of death, right? Right. Because they found beauty in a good death. Um, and there's something to that, right? Um, and just the, you will find, I think most people who have found mastery in anything, I don't care what discipline it is, doesn't have to be martial. It could really be anything. The introspection that comes from that process, from that journey, makes a, uh, a growth. Like you can almost see the energy from people who who have that right yeah. uh and that's why i get excited about you know if if we can achieve this at younger ages than our grandparents or whatever right at a much younger age if we can because of efficiency and other things exponentially pass that down to children and other people wow right right uh, um well, it's exciting if I don't mind me adding, um, I had someone come in asking for an apprenticeship. And the, going with that, like the thing I said from my apprenticeship to even them apprentice, and I think it's diluted from, again, like it's starting to grow. There's the bad in everything. Um, it's troubleshooting. Like I learned from my mentor what he or he troubleshot and expedited that learning curve. And so, like, if I apprentice somebody, I'm going to teach them what I was learned plus what I added to it to, for them to be better. Well, I look at what we, right? Uh, you know, look how good some of our strikers are getting so fast. Mm-hmm. It's, that's unbelievable. That, that's it, exceeded all of my expectations, too, because I told them the timeline, and we are way ahead of timeline. Yeah. Way ahead of timeline. I'm very impressed with the progress of our group. Right. But I, I think, you know, what I learned from jujitsu, and again, it applies to other areas, right? Good methods, and I think this is why I like business, because business is just organizational management. And, and the methods and practices in organizational management apply to all things, right? And so what I realized when I was teaching Muay Thai one day is I was asking myself, why am I getting so much better at jujitsu so much quicker, right? And then it dawned on me. It's like, because I'm actively doing it right i looked at the process of learning and i said what do we do we sit down on the mat and then in a very slow way we get taught a technique and then we walk through that technique slowly 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 until we get to where we're pretty much there we may learn some adaptions or whatever but then we have a testing period where we go about 30 50 percent and we do this flow with the technique learning real life application of it right and then when you get to the end you get to do it a little bit faster into the role where you're going above 50%. And then you're looking to try to win or, or apply other techniques and make this technique now flow into your thing. But when you look at that, basically, I realized, right, what are they doing? 
right? Mm -hmm. And that's that crawl, crawl, walk, run. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing. And so what I did in the, in the program is I adapted how we were teaching Muay Thai to start teaching Muay Thai like jujitsu. And it has changed everything. Well, it's like that conversation we had the one day when you, me, and Professor were sitting there. And I was like, dude, you already you already know this because you were trying to figure it out, remember? And mm-hmm. we started talking footwork and stuff. I'm like, dude, you know this already. Right. It's there. <laughs> you already know it. And you were like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, you're right. I do. <laughs> well, that's the thing, though. It's like no matter how good you are. You know, here I am. I'm at a gym where I am coach. Okay. Yeah. And I'm there in a leadership position as supposed to be the most experienced striker in the room. And, but this guy can come up and and show me something and say, Hey, why don't you move your foot over here? Why don't you try this? Hey, I know this footwork. I think you could do this a little bit better. You could get a little quicker. You know, in my position, I have two choices and what we all do as humans, right? I have two choices. I can go one, the typical arrogant asshole choice. Who the fuck are you? I look at me. I'm the boss in this motherfucker. I'm coach here. You need to shut up and we're going to do it my way. That equals no growth. That equals only self-glorification and ego. Right? And it limits the entire program. Or option B, I look at that moment and I go, "Oh shit, I'm really good for this information. Let me let me let me see what I can do for the, with this and and make it work and then if we can adapt this boom, this can become part of what we do now." Well, and it's the like I go back to the iron sharpens iron thing. I was always good on the outside and I was good in a clinch. Wasn't as good as you in a clinch, but I had a good clinch. You made a couple adjustments and my clinch went yeah, where it, you where you were like Holy shit, man. I wasn't ready for that. We had a good... No, but it was just because I needed those few things, too. Yeah, you're just missing a handful And you and things. I talking about... I'm like, yeah, you just need to open your hips up. And then you saw a true master doing some stuff, and you went, holy fucking shit, Sam was just talking about this. Right. Because he's blending stuff. Right. Right? It's not that I have a cheat code. It's just you're receptive going, huh, there's something there. Yeah, I just want to. I want to constantly learn. I want to constantly develop. And you know, that's what I told. We mentioned that on one of the previous podcasts. It's like, you know, when I felt like, unfortunately, Muay Thai doesn't have belts. You know, so it's like, when do I felt like I became a black belt, right? And and I had my school. I started my school back in. I don't remember the date right now off the top of my head, but it was like 2014 to 2015, somewhere in that range is when I opened the school. And even though I was instructing all that time. Looking back on it now, I really considered myself kind of like a purple belt. I right. think I went through that purple-brown belt phase as school owner because I was just replicating the traditional art. And then when I came to 10th Planet and after being there for a while and the influences of the other individuals like yourself and, and then um, Sean that trains there, and he's fantastic as well, and he's got great pedigree. And then having some of those other influences and going to the Sanchai Seminar allowed just kind of flipped a switch for me that kind of started to evolve what I was doing with Muay Thai. And then I felt like what I was alluding to earlier was I'm not diluting the art. I'm adding to the art. I'm now building my legacy in this so that when I pass down this information to a student, they're going to carry on that legacy and build upon it. And like we were just talking about, from where I stop, right? My life's journey will stop at some point and somebody who's just starting their journey is going to get the end result of that. And they're going to move on with that knowledge day one. Right. Think about what they're going to be capable of doing. And that's why it evolves. But you can't forget where that came from. That's why I said all the time. 
We're in a no-gi gym. I've been trained other places. You've trained other places. If I were to walk in now, if I were just moving here and I walked in there now and rolled, and I had a very good gym in Georgia. I had a very good coach in Georgia. He has a very similar way of teaching as the professor. Um, I still would have been like, I'm in a room full of blue, belt, blue belts. Mm-hmm. Even pretty new people. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, um, the ability to knowledge transfer and do things um, is phenomenal. And I think in the, envir- the environment, I think, is the biggest uh, net positive well, in all that. That's been the biggest thing for me. You talk about getting in my head. It's, so I got my blue belt before coming to the gym. And, uh, you know, um, the professor was nice enough to let me keep it. He respected the lineage of it, and he was like, look, I'll let you keep it, but I'm just going to be real with you. <laughs> He's like, you're barely there. In fact, I wasn't for a while. In fact, he let me know that. And then I finally got to the point where he was like, okay, you're a legit blue belt, like zero, level zero like, mm-hmm. today. Um, and I'm like, good, you know, I made that. But then I look around and, and all these guys in the gym that just came in a few months ago are passing me because, you know, I don't have the time to commit to it that they do because I'm running the Muay Thai and everything right. else. And it's like, and even Anthony, it's like he came in and it was just a few months ago, it's seven months now, six, seven months. It's about seven months. Yeah. Yeah. And you've, you gotten, know, you've gotten way better. Yeah. You look at where, you know, he was at then and, and you know, if I rolled him today, it would be a completely different experience. And, it, and so that, you know, motivates me, but it, it speaks to the caliber though, because, you know, I have three years of grappling behind me. I was still training. I wasn't like I was completely out of the game. Right. You know, I, 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 I downplay my experience, but I mean, I had legit training at, at decent gyms and had learned quite a bit along the way. And at at Tenth Planet, it just doesn't matter. It does not do me any good. Well, the <laughs> last episode you guys were talking about being the premise of Tenth Planet of growth, like you said, right. not doing the asshole thing. Like um, Sarge, I've seen him talk to the professor all the time. Be like, "Hey, would this work?" And be like, "I don't know. Let's try it." And see if it can be adapted in, if it will work. Yeah. Well, in that you know, the, there was <clears throat> two times when uh, it's when we were using the, there was the app and we were doing it for the warm ups. Mm-hmm. And one night he looked at one and Tom and I were together and we, we all watched it because he watched it before. And, you know, we're both two kind of senior guys in there and we watched it and we're like, hey, we think we're missing a piece. Mm-hmm. And we kept bringing it over, showing to him. He's like, not nah, kind of, actually a little bit. But I, we caught it. And then there was another day he hadn't looked at the warm-up yet, right? And he, he looks at it. He's like, Sam, look at this, because I'm on the other side of it. Because it's a two-sided flood. And right. we dissected it in a few minutes. A very comp Any other gym, that warm-up would have been a week of training. Yeah, and yeah, just we all picked it up pretty quick. Look, everybody picked it up yeah, fast, but just watching quick. the video, and we were able to replicate it and and do it. And that's when I was like, something happened in my brain. Not not just the movement. You know, you have to have a good foundation. Like last night, I asked him. Uh, I said, "Hey, when I run the warm up tonight, can I do?" Because we had so m- we had like eighteen people there last night, right? 
and I'm like, can I just, you know, I'll do some warm up. Could I just do some stationary stuff? Cause earlier in the week, like we were, me, him and Jackie were trying to explain tech stand while people were going across the mat and some other stuff. I said, could I just talk through some of these things? Because it's things people can practice on their own that these fundamental movements I see all the time in other techniques now. Like, I'll be mm. like, oh, it's just a sit-through. Or, oh, it's a hip heist. Or, oh, it's just this. But, you know, I want to paint a parallel here because this is what's been going through my mind as you're talking. And I think this would be a good spin for the audience. The parallels for life. It's taking that philosophy adaption and then putting that into your life and then allowing yourself to be able to explore new opportunities, to be able to try new things, and to be able to try enough new things, even in uncomfortable spaces, so that you become familiar enough with those spaces so that you gain the knowledge to be able to start applying that as knowledge later, right? And that's one of the things that I think people limit themselves so much with in everything that they do. It's they don't try enough. They could, uh, they get in this this lane or this box, and they think, well, they can't try that, or they can't try this, and they don't realize that sometimes the path to success is just kind of that scatterblast idea. You just got to try a little bit of everything until you find out what works, well, and then you got to allow things to fail and fall off and until you go. You're you're saying it, but I think what I'm hearing you say, or at least the the meat and potatoes of it, is. There's a difference in I can't do this and how am I going to do this? Oh, exactly. That's a massive, they sound similar, <clears throat> but that's a massive difference because oh, it's a huge difference. You're, you're acknowledging that, okay, I don't know how to do this right now, but I know there's a way and I know I can. Somebody else can. Even if I can't do it like them, I can do this. There's well, a way. Well, you know, like I said before, there's only two types of people in this world. The first person sees a problem and says, oh, no, there is a problem, and they stop. The second person says, oh, no, there's a problem. They see the problem, and they go, how do I solve the problem? And only focus on solutions. And that will change your directory and everything that you do in life, because that should be how you approach everything. You, know, right. you can't let problems stop you. Problems are never going to stop coming. That's they will be <laughs> all day long, every day. You know, life really is. And there's this a meme on Facebook where they're sitting in a train. And then one side of the train has got this beautiful view. And this other side's like a rock wall. It's all shitty. You know, and, and one person's looking to the left and the other one's to the right. And it's like, you know, um, your view is what, you know, what you're looking for. Right. Right. And it's, it's pretty metaphoric. And it's like, yeah, I agree with that. But it is very true. That's the thing. You have the choice. You can look at a problem and then say, oh, my gosh, that's a problem. You can look at a loss and you can say, oh, my God, I had a loss. Or you can say, hey, this problem could be an opportunity. That loss was a learning lesson. What can I do differently? How can I reshape this? How can I recreate this to create a solution for something else or the same problem? And then you have to be innovative, right? We have to be constantly innovating if we want to be pursuing something. And if you, do, if you don't want to pursue something, if you just want to be stagnant, if that's all you want to do, it's like, you know, I made it to this point in life. My goal is just to be here. And I would even challenge that. I think you still need innovation to stand still. 
right? Because the world is moving. If you're not moving forward, if you're just moving forward at a slow enough pace, you can keep up. But if you're not, then you're going to go backward. And that's just the fact of life. Well, and even if... There can be beauty in going backward. There can be. There's lessons in it. But right. only if you make it a lesson. And that's dependent upon the person. It's what are you looking for? That's what I mean. It's are all you, perspective. Yeah. Are you it's, taking it's that loss and saying, oh, man, shit, I had that loss. Woe is me. And you start throwing a pity party. Are you going to take that loss and you're going to go, damn, that sucked. Okay. What lessons did I learn here? This was good. I needed that punch on the chin. Right? Well, that reminds me of the first competition I for uh, jujitsu. Like, I was only the beginning of my second month of training, and that last part in my weight division, it was two rounds, and I got caught in the same position twice and lost. And when Professor was asking me about it, I was like, oh, I can see the problem. I know what I did wrong. Oh, I just want to get better. And, right. and he's like, that was a great answer right there. As like I didn't just beat myself up and be like I can't believe I lost. Well, and there's a big difference between. It's funny because a lot of the time, if you see somebody, people at the highest level, a lot of times they're very humble, at the very highest levels, right? And I think that's because they don't have to have just a persona, right? They don't care about it anymore. Mm -mm. They don't give a shit. Right, because it's not—it's no longer about that. They've transcended that concept, or they've outgrown it, or or whatever. However, you're gonna, you know. Well, that was just like the story I was telling you earlier today, and I talked to you about uh, Monday at training. Was that bar fight scenario? Like, I had the realization, like this fight is not worth it. I kind of transcend past that and be like, I don't need to fit this ego to get into that fight yeah and i think i think being able to <clears throat> get past the chemical dump and the get out of your own way because there's certainly times when violence is worth it but a bar fight ain't it no <laughs> yeah right. well, the scenario you know and i think wasn't. i i i think that comes down to like a concept that I really wanted to touch on is discipline, right? And that is the, for me right now, that's my manifest word at this particular point in my life. Because I realized the other day, what I wanted more than anything in life is to have prosperity. And then I wanted to have freedom, right? Freedom to live the life that I wanted to be able to live. And I wanted to be prosperous in everything that I did. My, my family, my relationships, finances, business, you name it. I wanted everything that I touched to be gold, right? But then I realized, uh, I can't, this, it came to me the other day, I was, uh, actually I was listening to this Jocko podcast, and um, it was about a dog ownership, and nothing related to anything, I wasn't going there for like motivation, <laughs> it just kind of landed there. Right. And then uh, one of the things that he said about training the dog was that uh, discipline equals freedom. And it's been so impressed upon me lately. Uh, you know, by what you know, Sarge just said is, you know, is people that overpromise and underdeliver, and I've been so inspired by like your discipline and the discipline of the professor and other people. You're one that has inspired me. Um, you know, Michelle is another one. You know, my my partner is really inspired me. There's these people that are in my life that are incredibly disciplined, 
And then I realized that this is the area I'm lacking, right? I started looking at my life and started looking at all like my missed opportunities and things that didn't go right. And I started saying, I, I realize now it's a lot less about what I did and it's a lot more about who I was. And that's what I realized is the key now. It's not about what you're doing. It's about who you are. Are you prepared to receive what you're doing in life right now? And if you're not, then it doesn't matter what your actions are. You're going to have a failure point at some point. And then for me, I realized that was discipline. Discipline was what I was missing. So my grandfather sent me this quote a long time ago. Uh, and I miss him. He's a really good, very interesting man. It was something to the effect of uh, be wary of your words because they become your thoughts. Right. And your your <clears throat> thoughts become your actions, and your actions become your habits, and your habits become your character. It matters. It does. Well, adding in that, like, that is something I've always talked about being, like, a man of your word. It's how I grew up, being a man of your word. Uh, if I'm saying I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. If you don't have your word, then you don't have respect behind your character. And I was even talking about, like, missing training all last week. Mind you, I was trying to heal my leg, but it kind of became temperamental. So when I came in Monday and Wednesday, I felt like I was slacking. I didn't take it on it. I like, kind of took it on myself. That's my fault. Like, well, and, and it's funny because you, it. you talk about me, but I I draw the same inspiration from you. <clears throat> you know what I mean? Same same kind of thing. Uh, which is why I go back to the iron sharpens iron thing. Right. You're a net sum of the five people you spend the most time around. Right. Um, I agree with that a hundred percent. Um. Good or bad. Uh, and you know, to that point, I've been, you, you guys know I've been injured plenty. I'm a, right. wa I'm a walking injury with everything I've had go on. And still kicks everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> it's not though. Like I, I, I have to be more deliberate and purposeful, but I'm still going to be there. Right. Still going to show up. And more often than not. I'm going to be the first one there. And right. if I can swing it that night, I'm going to be the last one to leave. Well, that's what I'm realizing. It's, and in this journey that I'm in, and it's a lot of it is just showing up and then developing little habits. You know, Michelle gave me the best tip the other day. She goes, I realized why I'm so much more productive around the house than you are and you and the kids. And I said, okay, well, I had like a million reasons of why this could be yeah. because it wasn't, it wasn't a shocker to me. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I wasn't just going, Oh, I wonder what this could be. Right. Sure. But what she realized, what she comes back is she goes, you don't grab as you go. You just don't grab as you go. If you're in a room and you see something, you just need to grab it and go as you're in that room, take it to the next space with you, grab as you go. And I thought, well, that's a really simple concept. I would, and then I was like, well, I can actually do that. That doesn't really take a lot of effort. And I started applying that. It's been like four days. What a difference that habit makes. Productivity went up to twofold, threefold. I mean, just ridiculous. Dude, you've got to give me your Kindle thing so I can share four-hour work week with you. 
You're going to love I'm waiting Tim, for it, man. Dude, I'm, you're going to love all Tim Ferriss' stuff. His, his principle, his 80-20 principle is the stuff that guy's done with even the four-hour body, the body hacking stuff. The stuff the guy has accomplished with it. Like, he won a yeah. kickboxing championship in two months and I never trained. I am so into biohacking right now, it ain't even funny. Well, I mean, he his principle is achieve 80% of the efficiency with 20% of the effort in anything right. he does. And he interviews world-class performers to dissect. He has batching emails for efficiency, literally a four-hour work week and being a six-figure income earner. That'd be amazing. I'd be happy with just, you know... Uh, have 100% effort equals 100% result. Right. You know, I'd be okay with that. I right. don't need 80-20. Right. Like, I just want to know that what one in, one out, we're good. Yeah. We are good. I, I, I don't know. I think, you, I think you'll dig it. I got to I gotta remember to get your stuff and send that to you because it's really good. Yeah. I was going down the Facebook wormhole of videos and obviously training with jujitsu, a lot more of that stuff pops up. Um, and algorithms. right, <laughs> and I saw like I listen to a lot of comedians, and there was a comedian on there, and he brought up jujitsu, and he held up a white belt and a black belt, and he goes, "My coach will always be like, which one's the harder one to achieve?" And obviously, answer being the black belt, and he's like, "No, it's the white belt. The you have to start. You have to, start. You yeah. have to keep on going." You have to start somewhere to get off your ass, in a sense, to do it. Yeah. One of my favorite motivational speakers, Mel Robbins, has a book. And I think it's called, uh, it's like the five, it's the five, four, three, two, one method yeah. or something like that. And uh, it doesn't matter what number it starts with. But man, is that an effective book. I have used that and I use that all the time. It's I'll find myself in those moments of like pause, you know. And when I get there, and it's then I'll just count down. It's like five, four, three, two, one, and then I just force movement. Just got to go forward, right? Just get movement going. And once that movement starts, boom, we're back in it. Well, it's and that's such an effective tool. Paralysis is paralysis and stagnation are the enemies of progress. Even in, uh, I believe it was at one of the Delta operators in Somalia. He was telling one of the young rangers, he goes, hey, when you're in combat, if you're going to do nothing, do it fast. Right. If you're going to do do something. I don't give a fuck what you do. You're going to move over here, this, this step, and think about this thing. Always be doing something. Don't just sit there. And it's true in, that's why people in retirement, you know, you sit there, it's like, hey... Like, even on a vacation or something, you can have the break, right? You can have the rest. You can have... It can be rejuvenating and everything else. But if you let that go too long, it becomes a problem. Well, right. Right? Like... 100%. Um, too much anything. You know, that's where my, my theme to my life is balance. I think that too much of anything is a bad thing. Yeah. Good or bad. You knew, It really balances the key to everything. And I try to balance everything to the best of my ability because when anything gets out of sync that's when everything goes wrong you know there's there's a key to harmonious living and, and if you can find that and achieve that in most of what your intentions are your lifestyles and behaviors then 
you can find a good space. But when that gets off kilter, you know, when it, it, it's kind of deceiving because when it gets off kilter, that's when some of the greatest models for success are built. That's where right. all of our most famous people come from, right? But what they don't realize is that's also where all of our, like, famous bad people come from, <laughs> right? <laughs> yep. And so this goes two different directions, and it doesn't uh, necessarily always have to end in being a good thing. So, you know, you, but living a happy life, you know, finding a place of enjoyment and and I think that comes back to the reward. You know, when, when we're looking at, like what you were talking about earlier with your tattoo studio and getting that space and, and what I'm speaking about with discipline and what, what Sarge was talking about with direction, I, for me, you know, putting those things together, it's the, the, the direction, the goal, the end result gives me the discipline to endure what I'm going through right and sometimes that helps me be able to say you know what i want this end result so bad that i'm not going to allow this to deviate me from this you know it's like uh different people find different motivations it's like even when a lot of diets if people do the i can't remember what it's called but essentially if they'll have a disciplined diet and then they'll have the one cheat meal a week right or one cheat day mm -hmm. as a concept if they're able to uh, eventually with the habits and everything else a, as a long-term strategy that might might not be okay well you're going to get me to soapbox on this so you better be careful when you get into the waters of nutrition you know what's going to happen <laughs> I, i'm not talking about a nutrition i'm speaking of it more from a, a habitual standpoint Fair. right right if 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 you are hey i need to okay it's like going to the gym right uh, I had a friend of mine a long time ago trying to motivate. We had, a, you know, the group of soldiers, the FTU program, joking around the fat, tired, yeah. uglies, right? Uh, he's like, listen. He's like, I don't care what you do. He goes, we're at where we're at. You got put in my hands or whatever. He goes, me sitting here yelling at you, berating you. I can get you probably where you need to be, but we're going to be right back here in another, like, month or three months or whatever. He goes, so what we're going to do is, I'm going to let you go to the gym and I don't care what you do, but I'm going to ask you what you did when you did it on the weekends. Cause I expect the same thing. He goes, I don't care how bad you feel. Just go. Even if you do one set of something and leave, just go. Mm -hmm. And if you need to find your one incentivized thing, like, Hey, at the end of the day, I'm going to have this one beer instead of six, whatever it is, start there, start with the one little thing to build right. he was trying to do the thing of creating a habit and that's kind of well and you know and that goes so let let me answer one of the viewer questions because you said that joe asked you this he he said he wanted to learn more about how we do what we do he said he comes here and he sees us and you know we're all in our 40s and we're all fit and he's like you know how the fuck do you guys do that right and he wants to learn shout more. out to joe too man he's lost like 30 pounds yeah that's amazing right but Here's the secret, and it, for me, when I started, I realized it was about habits. And so when I, here I was three years ago, and I'm living the typical unhealthy American diet and to its umpteenth degree, and I'm not going to go into that, I will pause. But I decided that I was going to start making life changes, and I made a very important decision, is I gave myself a, a three-week cycle 
And so instead of going on a diet, like instead of waking up and saying, I'm going to do Weight Watchers or Atkins or I'm going to do keto. Right. I just took one thing. I said, you know what? I'm going to do intermittent fasting. That's step one. And I'm going to implement that and I'm going to do that for three weeks. I'm not going to change anything else in my diet. No other behaviors, no other activities. I'm just going to learn to make that behavior there. And that did a couple of things. One, it allowed me to be able to adjust to form the behavior so that I could actually form the habit. And then two, it allowed me a period of time to be able to live with the habit, refine it, get it dialed in, and then it allowed me to be able to see the results of said habit. Okay, I had long enough to be able to see like, what is the impact of this particular change? And then the next step is, I eliminated something else, or I changed something else, and then I did everything in these little incremental blocks. Same principle. And everybody was so, was so against me at the beginning of this because everybody else around me was losing weight in like five weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks. And they were making these giant physical transformation. And my attitude going into it was like, no, I'm going to be somewhere five years from today. It does not matter. I'm going to be here five years from today. Any progress is progress. If I'm just further ahead five years from today, then I'll be further ahead. I have not reached my goal that I set three years ago, but I am still progressing towards that goal, okay? And I'm very close to the finish line, but I still monitor things now in those steps, right? You know, with my blood work, now it's a three-month thing. But look, I'm constantly monitoring my blood work, and I'm constantly looking at my blood levels. I'm not just trying something and saying, hey, look, guys. You just should do a 24 to 36 hour fast and here it's going to do this and fasting is going to take your blood pressure down. No, I've got years of blood pressure results and then I have months of change and I have documentation of why I changed it. All anecdotal, but this is my data. And then by refining it that way and learning in that small process, well, you know, it, it, it will enact change. It's funny that... Uh when I was in Georgia, I started doing, I read on intermittent fasting and I was like, okay, this can't be hard, right? It's funny because Joe actually was messaging me while we're sitting here and he's like, hey, you guys send me some stuff. He goes, yeah, I could Google it, but you guys send me some stuff because I'm one what you guys read, whatever. Uh, but I started intermittent fasting and I had really good results with it. And then I went just straight to one meal a day. Um, but I wasn't doing it in its purest form because I still put creamer in my coffee in the morning, right? I was just a habit, a year, for years of habit of doing that. Right. But even with that, and I understand spiking glucose levels in the morning and everything else, but still, just on a purely caloric metric of having a feasting window, I had that one meal, one, I slept better. Right. Uh, it had a lot of positive effects, and I started working with some of my lieutenants who I was mentoring, our PT officers who were responsible for stuff. And I was actually at one point doing kind of a three-in-one, and on that one day I would go carb-heavy to reset leptin levels. Mm. And I joked around because I wasn't super disciplined in it. I ate clean for three days, and then I ate whatever the hell I wanted on the third day. I understand not great, but it was working because the general macro principles were doing what it was supposed to do. And I, the lieutenant's like, God, Sergeant Sam, you're looking good. Like, what have you been doing? I said, honestly, 
here's what you do. And I gave him my Excel thing that calculated macros based on body weight and gender and everything else. Uh, plug this in, give this to people. And I go, you know what I had last night? He goes, what? I said a medium pizza. He's right. like, get the fuck out of here. And I'm like, no, really. But I'm only eating once a day. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that, yeah, I consumed 1,600 calories. I did it once. I slept great. And I actually woke up more trim this morning. Well, like, that's uh, the difference between making, you know, you've already highlighted a bunch of things that you do differently that people that are not successful with diet or health don't do. And the the biggest problem is is most people go out there and they go learn their information from magazines or fad diets, and then they go and they learn what the Atkins diet is, and then they apply the principles of the Atkins diet, but they don't understand physiologically what that is doing. And one of the advantages of doing it the way that I presented was you have to learn, like, what does intermittent fasting do? What is actually changing with your body? You know, when you get to portions like calorie control or, or, or calculating, you know, uh, you know your, um, your daily calorie intake, right? Yeah. And, you know, things like that, your basal metabolic rate. That's what yeah, I was yeah, looking yeah. for. BMI. Yeah. So, uh, so you want to know, like, you know, how many calories do I burn at rest for a day or whatever? But you will learn all of this stuff. And then over time, you will not just have this understanding of what dieting is but you will realize you understand what nutrition is and you understand nutrition's impact on your body and how it impacts everything in your body from how you feel to how you think to your hormone levels to you know your muscle mass and your and your body weight and then you can develop this educated view and relationship with it which which comes to a, a space to where then we get, you can get into like the biohacking right you understand how the machine works then you understand what you're doing but then i think the other thing that comes from that is for me it personally when you realize that you're making the decisions for health not just for what do i look like in the mirror that stopped being my focus a long time ago I stopped pursuing the, what do I look like? Yes. Do I still have an aesthetic goal? 100%. It's a side effect though. It's It's a side effect. I want to actually be healthy. And so that was a long-term goal for me that I went down and I decided that, you know, that's, that's how we're going to pursue this. So going that route, the education was developed and the changes got developed. And then I learned tools, but I lost interest in foods that were bad for me because I understood why they were bad for me. I didn't need a cheat day anymore. My cheat days are I'm going to allow myself more of foods that I normally would eat and maybe in more volume. Maybe I'll have a higher calorie day, but I'm not going to go introduce a cheesecake back into my diet because I've quit sugar. That's not going to happen. That's not an acceptable cheat day. You're damaging your body and your insulin resistance and and all of these things are are being changed by that decision. And you're fucking your hormones up and you're doing all kinds of dumb things. You shouldn't eat that. So when you're dieting, it's it's a lifestyle change. Well, and the... You're on one extreme... And it's respectable, it's commendable, and I'm not disagreeing with anything you say, but for the, for the layman, right, the average person just kind of like, man, I want to do something, just take that first step. Just take, go to the gym. 
Oh, yeah, 100%. You, you know, or not even go to the gym. Just, oh, no. Hey, I'm not advocating anybody start where I'm at. Right. But, but I'm saying that where got, I started. You got there. I started with just a three weeks of intermittent fasting. And were you even doing, so, were you doing like a 8, 16? Were you doing like a. Yeah, I think, no, I was doing the, um, I was doing the traditional 16, 8. And yeah, that's yeah, where yeah. I started. Yeah, the 8, 16, you're right. And then, um. And then I just did that for the three weeks, and then I played around with different types of fasting. But I did intermittent, but then I liked it, and so I kept it. So what I would do is when I would complete a stage, I wouldn't get rid of it. Right. I would say, okay, that worked. And then, you know, I went into the next stage, and I think that the next stage, I, uh, at that point in my life, I think I was drinking Diet Coke. Right. And so I got rid of the aspartame, and so that was a big thing. I switched over to, like, sucralose and stuff, and so I made yeah, that I've, big change. I've actually cut that out because yeah. i was supplementing that when i right. like quit drinking during the week and, and then whatever, that but. and then those progressions go down until eventually you're eliminating like you know simple carbs and stuff like that and then you get rid of some i've made a lot of changes whether it just be supplements i did the same thing like, and eventually you don't care that's the thing when everybody hears it which i actually got to go in a minute but we could do a whole podcast on this 100 percent. but it's a mammoth it's like you're looking at an elephant going, hey, I got to eat this thing. That's probably a bad metaphor for this conversation. But, probably. But, but I would eat, maybe would eat uh, an elephant. Maybe. Right Possibly. now, especially. Yeah, 100%. But uh, um, rather than, hey, maybe I just need to try this, don't have breakfast for three weeks. Right. Right? Like you did. Um but anyway, we should probably make that another podcast. I think we're about at time. 100%. Yeah, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. So I want to say thank you to Mr. Anthony Ferguson for joining us today. Yeah, man. Thank and, you guys uh, for having me. Hey, man, we really appreciate your support and everything that you're doing and believing in us and our mission. For sure. Um, you stepped up as our major episode sponsor right away. Uh, no hesitations. That mental world does, man. Thank you. Well, again, like with my shop still being newer, like like Sam says, uh, all the time there was the metaphor again iron sharpens iron right yep. right well that's the same with small businesses growing with small businesses yep right building community together and supporting each other right. especially in this day and age man with with e-commerce and we're all fighting against people that are so far away and if we don't join together we're all going to get beat and Agreed. and building that community and that partnership is important and yeah you know building home taking care of home man we all got to become part of home for sure. And, and that's what this is. This is family. So we appreciate you. You have an amazing shop. Um, anybody out there that's interested in getting a tattoo by Anthony, uh, please see our description. Uh, inside of our description is a link to be able to contact him. And if you contact him and mention the Stoned Apes podcast, you will get 20% off Correct. of any booked tattoo, which is a pretty great deal. Hell yeah. We're going to take this time to also thank our other episode sponsor, and that would be Mr. Elliot Groth. Elliot Groth owns E Productions, which is an audio video company. He does photography and audio video for social media, does a lot of stuff with algorithms and, and social search. media management. Yeah, yeah, social media management. Uh, really creative and, t and, and talented individual. Uh, the videography that he did for um, 10th Planet is excellent. We also have a link in the description for you to be able to go see that. Um, Elliot also owns Gateway Tattoo up in Arnold, Missouri. He is an appointment-only tattoo artist, so if you're interested in getting a tattoo by Elliot, he specializes in black and gray and realism tattoos. You should send him an email with your ideas, and he's going to review those ideas and get back with you and kind of see if the, you guys could work something out. 
And if so, you can book an appointment with him. And if you mention the stoned apes, he will give you $50 off any half-day booked appointment, which is a pretty good deal. So absolutely recommend that you go out and see Elliot. As for the stoned apes, we got some big stuff coming here in April. We have a newsletter that's going to be rolling out hopefully as soon as next week or the week after at the latest and with our newsletter rollout we're going to have a bunch of great announcements that are going to come into that we have so many guests booked we are booked up through like middle of may now I've, i'm losing track like we yeah, may be in the it's, summer it's <laughs> really taken off between guests and sponsors it's it's really there's a lot of exciting stuff coming guys and i can't wait to share it with you so with that, that is the end of this episode. I appreciate everyone out there. Thank you for listening. If you're still listening, make sure to click that subscribe button and click that notification bell so that you get notified when we release future episodes. Give us some comments. Absolutely. Let us know what you want to hear. Make some comments underneath there. We'll have some polls out there for you and uh, participate in them. We'd love to hear your feedback. And with that, Stoned Apes, out.